Lord, as we turn to your word, once again we pray, Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. May we hear what you, Almighty God, say to your church. And Lord, if you stir in our hearts and you point to specific things in our lives, may we pay attention. May we allow your Spirit to do your work in us, to change us to be like your Son. And Lord, where we look today and we see the amazing person of Jesus Christ, may we revise our vision of who he is. May you make that vision of Christ so far greater than what we could ever have imagined. Because then it will influence our lives. And we will see Almighty God at work in our everyday affairs. Show us Christ, we pray. Amen. So I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We've started the series. Um, we've looked at the first, uh, first two verses so far of Hebrews. And um, today we're looking at verse 2 to 4. And then next time we'll look at the rest of that chapter when we get together again, when we look at how Jesus is so far greater than all the angels. Um, but today we're going to be looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask you to turn with me there and let's just read those first four verses together and then see what the Lord has to say to us. So the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, power of, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus speaks to the woman of Samaria, and he says to her, You Samaritans worship, but you know very little of the one you worship. Today the cry in many churches is, away with all the tedious complexities of sermons and theology. Just let us worship God. Less talk, more sing. And the major drawback with uh, this kind of thinking is that you start worshipping a vague God. One person thinks they know who or what God is, and the next person next to them has a different idea of who and what God is. And it becomes very vague. You start worshipping nothing in particular. I'm worshipping God. Well, who or what is this God you're worshipping? What is it about this God that you're worshipping? 
And we end up with a shallow, insipid form of Christianity, which in the end doesn't affect our everyday lives, because why would it? We don't know who and what God is. How can it affect our lives? And so it's really, really important, because if we don't know who and what God is, the sipid Christianity which we hold on to won't endure the test of life and will fizzle out. And you will have met many believers who said, I once used to be a believer. I once used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore. Whatever might have happened in their lives, what they didn't have was a large view of who God is. And so it's really, really important that when the Bible speaks about God, we pay attention. And the passage this morning speaks about Jesus Christ. It speaks about Jesus Christ as the supreme one. There is no other like Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because when we face hard times, when we face times of persecution, it's really, really important to know who Christ is. It's really important to know that He is the Supreme One. And the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians in that era who were undergoing all kinds of pressures to return to Judaism, to return to an Old Testament picture of God because they were under pressure in their everyday lives. They were under pressure to continue or not as Christians. And if you haven't got a big picture of God and of Jesus Christ, then you've got wiggle room. Why? Why do people want wiggle room? Well, if Jesus isn't the supreme being, if he isn't God, then I can minimize his authority. I can minimize who Jesus is as a person. I can merely make him out to be a Galilean preacher. He was a good teacher, but a Galilean preacher. Or maybe just a great man among men. Or he was like an angel. Well, that's not Jesus. He's not like an angel. You see, because if we've got this insipid view of Jesus Christ, then I can choose to accept his opinion, not his word to me. Do you see the difference? So it's really, really important that we don't minimize Jesus into a great teacher who's just a man who was unfortunately crucified when he is in fact the son of the living God. And that means in a literal, physiobiological sense, as the virgin birth described him. He is God become man. That's the Jesus that I read about today in this passage. He is Lord. So let's see how the writer to the Hebrews wants to encourage these Hebrew believers to believe in Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last time in verse 2 that Jesus Christ is God's appointed spokesperson. Our verse said, God has spoken to us in His Son, says the text. He is God's spokesperson, the appointed spokesperson. It's no longer the Old Testament prophets. He now speaks in His Son. Who is His Son? He is the very Word of God. You can't get away from those two. When God speaks His Word, who is speaking? It is the Son speaking. And that's God Himself speaking. 
And we saw last time that when God spoke to people, He said to them in Luke chapter 9 verse 35, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. God's direct command to human beings. So He's God's appointed spokesperson. We've done that in the last sermon. I'm not going to elaborate anymore. Secondly, our text this morning says, He is the heir of all things. How is He the heir of all things? Well, God made a promise to His Son. Do you see the Godhead working? God made a promise, a messianic promise to His Son in Psalm 2 verse 8. This is what He said. And if you've got a Bible which capitalizes when God is speaking, it'll become clear to you. This is God's, the Father, speaking to the Son. He says in Psalm 2 verse 8, Ask of me, capital M, God the Father, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, capital Y, the Son. The ends of the earth your possession. I'll read that again. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. Now that speaks of being an heir. Jesus Christ is the heir of the nations and creation. So everything... Christ has created, He is the heir of. And all the nations who put their faith in Him right throughout history are His inheritance. And if you're a believer today, you are His inheritance. He is the one who's the heir of God. You see, why is this important? This is important because God has got a personal interest in His creation and in the nations. He's not a dispassionate, impersonal God. As Christ followers, here's the follow-up truth. We are His co-heirs, says Romans 8.17. And so if He inherits the earth and the nations, guess what we're going to inherit? The earth and the nations. Because we are the co-heir of Christ, says Romans 8.17. And therefore, we are to take a personal interest in both the creation and Everything in creation and in the nations of the earth. That's the implication. And there's our motivation for conservation. We are to be greenies in the good sense of the word. We are to look after the earth God's given us. We are to be responsible with how we use the resources God has given us. Why? Because we are co-heirs with Christ of creation. And if the church isn't being responsible, the world's going to show us the way. And they'll always go over the top with things. We need to be leading in this because we are co-heirs with Christ. But that's not all. We are co-heirs of the nations of the world with Christ. So there's our motivation for what? For evangelism. For taking the good news out into the world. Because those who come to Christ are His inheritance, and we can be part of that inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. One day, all of creation and all nations of the earth will be accountable to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says that all nations and all creation will one day stand to account 
before Jesus Christ. And we will be there as co-heirs. So we need to start today. These things have implications on us, you see. He is the heir of all things. It applies to us as well. Thirdly, we see that He is the creator of everything. 1 Corinthians 8.6 1 Corinthians 8.6 Listen to this verse. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist. Did you hear that? We exist for God. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's the creator of all things. You see, the greater man's understanding becomes of the intricacy of nature, of all the colossal marvels of the universe throughout all our scientific discoveries, the greater becomes the need to know about the origin of life. Where did this all come from? The more we understand about everything around us, the greater the question comes up in, who made this? And that's why scientists are sending missions to Mars. They don't want to look for the answer here because they don't like the answer they are seeing in creation here. So let's go to Mars and see if the answer is different. And yes, the urge is in us to explore because we are made in the nature of God and He is a creative God. And so it's, I mean, I would love to go to Mars and see it from, with my own eyes because I'm made in, in God's nature. But people are looking for an answer there that's already here. That's already right in front of us. They're looking for the origin of life. And so they scratch around in ice and all kinds of stuff on Mars to see if they can find some semblance of life. So they can say, you see, life started away from us, outside. And so it could have happened like that here on Earth. They don't want to take the answer that's in front of them. But here Scripture simply states, and it's not hard to understand, it says, the Son made the world. Take it or leave it. You either accept that statement or you turn your back on it. That's the way Scripture works. And that's what God says to us. Accept my Son as creator of the world or turn your back on Him and reject Him and come up with your own theories. The Son is the creator and all creation is subject to Him. Even the skeptics will be subject to creator Jesus Christ. So He's the creator of everything, says our text in Hebrews. So how is this fact to encourage Hebrew Christians? We've always got to move back there. Because this was written to them. We are the beneficiaries. How is this fact that Jesus is the creator meant to encourage His Hebrew Christians? Well, surely a Jesus Christ whose hands had shaped the universe and summoned the galaxies of stars into existence would be with them in their everyday troubles, would be bigger than their problems, would be there for them in their days of testing and adversity to provide for their everyday needs. And won't he do the same for you and I now? If he can create the galaxies, I'm sure he can come up with a next payment for your house if you're in that predicament. Surely. How big is the Jesus you worship? 
So He's the creator of everything. We need to remember that when things come up in life. Fourthly, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, this is the one that really gave me encouragement this week. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The Greek word here is apaugasma, which means He is a light emitter. He emits light. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What is he emitting? He is emitting, he was putting out the glory of God. If you've ever looked at a very, very bright light, can you see the difference between the light source and the brightness? You can't, it's all one. You can't separate the source and the brightness. They're two distinct things, but one. Jesus as the Son, God the Father, they are light. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We see Him, we see God. We see the glory of Christ, we see the glory of God. Do you see what He is? He's the radiance of the glory of God. 1 John, uh, sorry, John 1 verse 14, listen to what it says. And the Word became flesh. Now, that's just a few words. God became man. The Word became flesh. The invisible became visible. And He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. That's what this text is speaking about. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace in truth, if you've seen Jesus Christ, you've seen God. And He dwelt among us. We've seen the glory of God. Now, you'll say to me, come on, Calvin, I haven't seen Jesus Christ. My friend, go back to your Word and go and see Jesus Christ. Read this Word and see the glory of God on display. That's what this verse is talking about. He is the radiance of the glory of God. If you want to see God, see Christ. But that's not all. If you were a good Jew, immediately when you heard this word radiance, immediate association would spring to mind. Three things. God in the tabernacle. The word radiance is there associated with the two cherubim. And between the two cherubim, God dwelt between the two cherubim in His glory on the ark of the tabernacle in the tent of meeting. That's the immediate association with the word radiance to a Jew. There's a second association, and that is when God's glory descended on Mount Sinai. The word used is the same word, the Old Testament version of it. God's glory descended on that mountain, and God was with man. And the third association we have is with Moses, if you're a good Jew and you hear the word radiance, you'll think Moses, shining face. What happened? Moses spent time with God when he was being, being given the Ten Commandments. He spent time in God's radiance. And when he came down off the mountain, the Bible says that his face was shining so much that the people were afraid to look at him. And it specifically says his face was shining because he'd been in the presence of God's radiance. Wow. 
So that's if you're a Jew listening to this passage. What's the encouragement? The encouragement to them is, as Jews, is that the same glorious God who was with His people gathered around the Ark of the Covenant is now with them through His Son, Jesus. They have that same radiance of the glory of God. They don't need to rush back to the Old Testamental God of the Old Testament Judaism. That same radiance available then to them is available now to them through Jesus. All they need to do is trust Him. His radiance is there for them. He is with them. He is present, God with man. And when they'd seen Jesus, they'd seen the glory of God. And unlike Moses, who could not look at the radiance of God on the mountain, but had to be hidden by God himself, this Jesus Christ is the one who is God's glory on display. He doesn't have to hide. He is God. That's the encouragement. And the same truth is there for us today. God is still with us. Believe in Jesus and He is with you in whatever may come your way. Fifthly, we see that there's another attribute we can sing God's praises about, and that is this, that He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Are you sticking with Theology 101 here today? Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. The Greek word character comes to mind. What word do you recognize there? Character. All right? But there are two parts to this word. The word character means stamp. And so you took a stamp in the old days, you put hot wax stamp into the hot wax, you take the stamp away, and what have you got? An imprint exactly of the stamp. But it's describing something. His exact imprint or exact reputation of what? Of the nature of God. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. If you see Jesus, the nature of Jesus Christ, you see the nature of God. If you see Jesus Christ loving people, giving himself freely for them, you see the nature of God visibly. He is the exact imprint of God. The Greek word is hypostasios, and that's where we get the word. Uh, that's where the word nature comes from, and we get this term in theology called the hypostatic union. There's your big word for today. The hypostatic union. What is that? The hypostasios, God with us, the exact imprint, the Son, the Father, God with men. The exact same Jesus is God with us. Speaking about his Godhead, his divinity. You see, the incarnate Jesus, the one who became man, gives us visible shape so that we can see God. We can see that he's authentic. And when the invisible God became visible, that visibility was Jesus Christ. Why, why am I harping on in this? Because people are attacking this thing today. They're saying he's not really God. He was made by God. That comes from the 4th century, the Arian controversy. Here's a bit of uh, history for you, Christian history. There was a guy called Arius. And he taught that the Son was a created being. 
made by God, but inferior to God the Father in his nature and his dignity. He taught that. And people today still believe it. You go to the market and you speak to any J-dubs or Mormons and they will tell you the same thing. Jesus isn't God. He's created by God. Well, that's not the Jesus I read about here. This Jesus is God. If you ever get those people coming to the door, ask them one question. Is Jesus God? Yes or no? That will turn them away or get them into conversation. But you'd better know what you're going to say next thing because they're well trained. Jesus is God. Don't let anyone tell you he's a created being. They misuse verses in Scripture to say he's created, but he's not. He is God. Next point. He's the upholder of the universe. Now, this is a fantastic one. He's the upholder of the universe. Again, we've got two parts. The word upholder means to preserve and to sustain. The word preserve means you're not going to become corrupt, and to sustain means life into the future. So there's two parts to this word. He is the upholder of the universe. You see, Jesus Christ keeps the universe from falling apart. He's at the very center of the continuing stability of the whole universe. There's no place in this truth that we hear, read about here for God who is pictured as a watchmaker who creates a watch and then leaves this watch to tick over and run all by itself and he goes away and does something else. God is personally involved with his creation. I spoke to you last time, the Tala Andig, the ones that we support in mission, they are taught by the spirits in the forest that this God might have made you, but then he goes away across the sky dome and he's impersonal. He doesn't have anything more to do with you. So you'd better worship us. And so they do. But this God we read about here, Jesus Christ, is a personal God. He's God in human form. And he's the upholder of the universe. He's involved in the continuous upholding of the universe. Yes, even through COVID. Yes, even through major earthquakes we might experience. Yes, even through natural disasters. Imagine what it would be like if he wasn't there. We wouldn't exist. We'd be snuffed in a millisecond. He upholds the universe. And so scientists who discover great and amazing truths are doing nothing but discovering a few more laws that Jesus Christ has already designed and he uses to control the universe. Scientists will never discover a new law that Jesus Christ will say, Oh, I didn't know that. They are discovering laws he has already made that he uses to uphold the universe. All they are doing is putting it into mathematical formulations. Nothing new under the sun. Christ is the one who's the source. How does he uphold, says our text? By his powerful word. Genesis 1. God said, word, let there be light. What happened? There was light. Is that powerful? I'd say. I tell my dog to sit and nothing happens. 
Jesus on the lake with, the, with his disciples. On that major storm of his creation. What did he say? His word came out. He said, let there be peace. And what happened? It's not hard. There was peace. And the Bible says, immediately, it was still. Why? Nature listened to the voice of the Creator. This is the Jesus that I'm talking about. Jesus Christ preserves and He bears us along. He is the upholder of the universe. That's you and I. He keeps us from creation, and you might not believe that when you look in the mirror every morning. He preserves us. He's talking about your soul. Your body is going to happen. But you will get a new one. He preserves us, and He carries us along every day. Why? He does it through His Word. How does He do it? Through His Word. I need to read the Word and look at all those promises that God gives me. He will uphold me. He will sustain me. He has said He will. The Word will do it. And if the powerful Word which said, let there be light, and there was light, if He said so, then if He says so in the Word, it will be so. I need to believe it. The problem is, we don't. But that's not God's problem. It's mine. Seventh, and there are eight points here, so stick with me. He's a purifier of sins. Now, I'm just going to touch on this because the text just touches on it, and it will come to it later. In chapter 9, there's a whole big debrief on this, all right? So, he's the purifier of sins. The word purifier literally means to purge of sin, to get out of you, to push out. He's the purifier of sins. And this becomes a central theme in Hebrews. But note the contrast here. I want you to note the contrast here. You see, Jesus is ceaselessly the radiant light. When does he stop being the radiant light? He's ceaselessly the radiant of light, the radiance of God's light. He's always that. He's ceaselessly a perfect copy of God. He continuously upholds the universe by the word of his power. But when he himself, Jesus, gave himself up on the cross, Jesus shed his blood once for all at a single point in time, never to be repeated again. It is a finished work of Christ. He's never going to do that again. It's a once for all task. Christ fully accomplished our cleansing of sins and getting rid of that guilt. The law said, do this, do that. Christ said, believe this, trust this. I've done it. There's a difference to the Jewish believers. You don't have to go on sacrificing. You don't have to go back to your Judaistic priests who have to keep sacrificing day by day. Why would you? You've got a far greater gift, a once for all sacrifice. Christ has done it. Now believe him and trust him. There's encouragement for the Hebrew believers and for you and I. You see, God's forgiveness is permanent. And it leads into the very presence of God. And that leads me to the last point. Christ, the one we see in our text here, is a victorious Christ. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, 
What comes just before that? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When did he sit down? Only after having done the work of purification. Then he sat down. Then he was lifted up into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, in the right hand of the majesty in heaven as a co-ruler there. He's there in the seat of honor at the right hand of God. He's a co-regent of God. But the importance of that enthronement is in what comes before, in this act of purifying and making complete. How do I know that? Because of the whole system of purification. In the Old Testament, the priest in the temple, committing his, uh, going about his everyday task in the temple, never sat down. There was no seat in the temple for the priest. Why? Because he had to continually make sacrifice for the people. He could never stop. He was continuously sacrificing. That was his job. I'd hate that job. He never sat down. He probably didn't get the spread in the middle that I did then. But that's a different thing. The priest never sat down. Why? Because the task was before him all the time. But when Christ had made sacrifice, it was finished. Do you get the point? He sat down. It is finished, he said on the cross. And then he went to be with the Father in heaven. And that's not all. The story continues. He is the victorious Lord. And guess what? He's returning from that position. He's the victorious Lord. And when you see him again, it's because he stood up as victorious Lord, crowned in all his majesty, and he has returned. He's not going to die on the cross again. That's over. The next time you see him is as victorious Lord, because that's what he is now. Are you ready for his return? I can't read your souls. The Lord can. But are you ready for the return of that victorious king? There is still time to bow to Jesus. This great cosmic Jesus I've been speaking about. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? Here's my question for you. First question, how big is the Jesus you worship? How big is he? Is he a God-sized Jesus? Is he a galaxy creator? Or is he a man-sized Jesus, one with a halo around his head? That's not radiance. I know artists were trying to portray it, but they came so far short, didn't they? He is the radiance of the glory of God. Is that the Jesus that you worship? You see, we're in danger of confining Jesus Christ to our restricted experience and our limited knowledge of Him. But that's not Jesus Christ. We need a vision that God can give us of a Christ who is cosmic in His dimensions. That's the Christ I want to worship. And how do you know which one you are serving? Is the Jesus you worship far bigger than your problems? What looms larger on a scale? 
when, you, when stuff comes against you in life, it doesn't matter what it is, no exclusions here. What is bigger, your issues or Jesus Christ? Which one? Cosmic Jesus, my problems. Cosmic Jesus or my problems. You see, if Jesus becomes cosmic, your problems reduce down to nothing. Because he takes them on him. And he takes them from you and works through them with you. He is the creator God who speaks powerfully. You see, only once you've fallen on your knees in worship can you hope to stand firmly on your feet during hard times. I'll repeat that. You have to fall on your knees and worship Jesus as the cosmic one if you want to stand during adversity. Otherwise, you will fall. Secondly, Allow the radiance of Jesus Christ to fill you with His joy and peace. This is the thing that hit me right between the eyes. Psalm 34, verse 4 and 5. Look at this. Psalm 34, verse 4 and 5. You see, the word radiance, God was with His people on that Old Testament tabernacle. He was with His people on the mountain. That word radiance is there. Now, read this, word, this verse with me. Verse 4 and 5 of Psalms. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are, oh, radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. Why? Why, why does God answer by making us radiant and giving us His joy? Because of Jesus Christ. If I've accepted Him into my life, who is in me? The radiant Christ is in me. And so when my problems come up, I come to the Lord, I bring them before Him. He says, here's my son. And He gives me His radiant joy. Wow, that hit me. I pray that the Lord would make that a powerful truth to you as well this week. He is the powerful sustainer creator, the God who is with us. We have His radiant presence in us. God's glory. Amazing. And then lastly, when we've looked at this passage and everything it says about Jesus Christ, the cosmic one, this is the only true Christ who is worthy to be worshipped. There is no other Christ. I'm saying this because culture will tell you something else. The culture around us and many within the church are all bowing to relativism. Relativism means my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. My truth doesn't have to be your truth. Your truth doesn't have to be my truth. Relativism. And so you believe that he's the cosmic son. Well, I think he's a great teacher. Relativism. In the church. Many bow to realism, many bow to postmodern thought. And therefore, our culture is plummeting deeper and deeper to levels of social confusion and crisis. You just have to look at the way we're changing legislation now. Social confusion and crisis. 
We make it up as we go. But we need to take seriously the Bible's witness of who the Son is and who the Bible says He is. He is the ultimate Word of God, and we stand on that. And if society's norms and values go against what Christ says, I stand on Christ's values and His norms, not on society's, and that might mean I have to pay a price. It is this Christ that I will be obedient to, and Him alone, the cosmic Jesus. Why? He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact reputation of God. He is the one who takes away my sin. He is the one who draws me near to God. He is the only one who can offer lasting life, um, help in time of need. He is the only exalted Jesus, the only one worthy to be worshipped. There is no other Jesus Christ I would serve. I will stand against the world, but serve Christ. I love that old hymn, Joseph Hart, wrote it in 1786. If I can sing, I'll sing it to you. Listen to these words. How good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end. Hebrews. Tis Jesus, the first and the last, whose spirit shall guide us safe home. We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. I pray that's the prayer on your heart. In the light of this text from Hebrews, trust the ever-present cosmic Jesus, whatever may come your way. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the only one we trust and worship. Let there be no other gods before us. Amen.